Thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. It's great to be with you. My name's Mike, and uh, I'm here with Rochelle, my wife, and um, my oldest daughter, Izzy. Um, I also have a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old. Um, they were unable to make it with the only real excuse that I heard being that they're teenagers. So, <laughs> I'm not sure how legitimate that is, but um, I'll let that one go. Um, I just wanted to say at the outset, what I, uh, in my role uh, with overseeing some elements of training and accreditation for Baptist pastors, I, ha I have the opportunity to get around to a lot of our churches. And um, I've been down here to the Port Church a couple of times, just snuck in the back and um, just really enjoyed being with you folks and just appreciated the sense of peace and belonging and just collaboration and contribution that is sort of, you can sense is part of your DNA here as a community. There's this deep sense that I get from just being with you that there's this appreciation for the fact that God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves, right? Right? He's done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And what he calls us to, as we participate in mission with him, is to communicate that message to others by being able to give to others and do for others what they cannot give or do for themselves, right? And that can take so many different forms. It can be words of encouragement and affection and value that interrupts people's negative kind of spiraling thinking sometimes. It can be an act of generosity. It can be a hamper. You wouldn't believe how significant things like hampers are for struggling families, especially around Christmas time. Interrupting folks' destructive habits might look like forgiveness for somebody who has committed an ill against us. And the best way that we can speak of God's love, God's ability to do what we, what we can't, is to pass that on through the act of forgiveness. All right? Um, I, I was, when Ben invited me to, to come and share, I, I, I stewed on this for a long time. <laughs> uh, what, what passage could we look at together? Um, and it's actually a bit of an obscure one from the Old Testament that I'm going to get to in a minute. But before I do that, I just want to tell you a bit of a story from my childhood. Is that okay? When I was young, um, I, I had, well, what's the best way to describe it? I had the dental equivalent of a comb over. Yeah. It's just like I opened my mouth and it just didn't make any sense. There were spaces where there were not meant to be spaces and there was too many teeth where there were not meant to be teeth and they all tended to one side of my mouth. And as a result, I spent a long time in the dentist chair as a child. And uh, my dad was a pastor as well. And we had a dentist in our church. Now, uh, his name was Dr. Lee, Dr. Peter Lee. And he was a Chinese man. And... Um, Mum and Dad were convinced that he was the best dentist in all Australia. And it's funny, you know, you just accept that as a child. It's like, oh yeah, Dr. Lee's obviously the best dentist. Well, how would I ever know that? 
right? What I do know is that I spent a long time in his chair. Over the years, I had 12 teeth pulled out and then a whole bunch of metal for many years. But mum and dad said to me, Mike, smiles are worth investing in, so. <laughs> anyway, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that what I noticed happen every time we went to the dentist was that my dad or my mum, but mostly my dad, dad and Dr. Lee would sort of do this dance now, not a real dance, but like a dance with one another when it came to payment for the treatment, <laughs> right? Because Dad was a pastor and, and, and Dr. Lee wanted to be generous and uh, he said, and I used to, uh, truth be told, I used to impersonate Dr. Lee with his Chinese accent. Having teenagers, I've learned that it's not appropriate anymore, <laughs> So, so that's not going to happen. Um, but anyway, Dad and Dr. Lee would do this dance in terms of Dad would try and, and pay the bill. And Dr. Lee would say, just just the health fund, right? And and we had Medibank, or same as we you know, do, the, do now. And um, it was one of the weird things about my parents was like... You know, <laughs> used to shop at second-hand clothing stores and there was lots of things mum and dad would skimp on, but healthcare was not one of them. But um, Dr. Lee would say, uh, just, just the health fund, no gap. And dad would try and pay the full bill and he'd say, no, no, just, just the health fund. And he'd do it every time. Do it, even though he knew that Dr. Lee would just take whatever it was that Medibank paid out, you know. And uh, he said, no, no, just the health fund, just the and dad would insist and he would resist and he would, and it went on for about two or three minutes and then they'd shake hands and the dance was over. But it was this interesting thing that I noticed taking place between them because there was goodwill and there was generosity, but there was also a lack of ease or a lack of comfort with the fact that, you know, those things, grace and generosity, you know, we're, we're, we're in many ways, we're more comfortable with paying for something, aren't we? Than with the reality of generosity and grace. Because it, what is it that happens when we're the recipients of generosity and grace? We feel, how do we feel? Humbled? Grateful? Maybe motivated to do the same for others? It's just this fascinating story in the book of 2 Kings. It's, it's actually one of my favourites in, in all of the Bible. And um, I thought we would walk through it together this morning. Is that okay? Yeah, all right, that's what we're going to do. Why don't we pray first, though? Let's have a word. Lord Jesus, as we um, open your word together, we ask that you would bring to us what it is that you want us to receive, but that which you also want us to take out into the world this week. We thank you for this place, this place where we can orientate ourselves around you and who you are. And we thank you, Lord, for that reality that you've done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. 
So, this story, can I bring the PowerPoint up there if that's all right? From the book of 2 Kings chapter 5, it says, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. And a couple of things off the top. Now, Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. This is not Israel right now. This is not the people of God's story as is told throughout most of the narrative. This is a little bit of an excursus. It's a bit of a sideways story. And yet, we find that God is working through unexpected people and unexpected countries. God is free. God is going to do what God's going to do. And if he wants to work through Aram and Naaman, then he's going to do it. So we have Naaman, and he's the commander of the army of the king of Aram. This is modern-day Syria. And he's a valiant soldier. This is a man with rank and regard and respect. And then one day he notices that things aren't right on his skin and it's leprosy. And you need to understand something about leprosy in the ancient Near East. This is, this is the end of his career as a soldier. This is the end of his reality as a normal community member. Leprosy meant basically, uh, if not a death sentence, then excommunication from communities because it was so contagious and people worried about it so much. So this is what we're introduced to. This valiant soldier looks at his skin and he has leprosy. Now, there's a little bit more context given to the story here. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. Okay, so here's the intersection of Israel's story and a foreign neighbor, their story. Bands of raiders have gone out, as they did in the midst of tribal warfare, and they've gone out and they've stolen or taken an Israelite girl. She's part of the, the, the bounty that they've brought back from these raiding parties, and she's serving as a servant of Naaman's wife. And here, behind enemy lines, we have the Israelite girl doing God's work. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. What this girl is communicating is that from early on in Israel's history, the prophetic tradition, the prophetic imagination was so wild and free that it had the capacity to bring about the miraculous in people's lives. And even though she's been kept captive as a slave girl, she's like, oh, 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 there's a guy. You've got to go see my guy. Right? He would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master, that's the king, and told him what the girl from Israel said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. The king of Aram wants this guy to stick around. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The emphasis is this is a lot of booty. He is prepared to pay a high fee for Naaman's healing. This is a valuable person 
in his leadership. So he sends him. Sends with the letter, with the letter that he took to the king of Israel, read, with this letter I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now remember, this would be very strange because quite clearly not very long ago, these two nations are sending out raiding parties after one another. And all of a sudden he's getting a letter from his enemy and he's thinking, all right, what in the world? What trick is going on here? As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? I think that um, Israel's king at the time is given to a bit of drama. <laughs> Seems a little bit emotional, you know? But lucky for the king of Israel, he's got someone with a calmer head. Elisha is the prophet of the day. And Elisha seems to be in the vicinity of this interaction to the point where he hears of it. And thus he says, When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message, Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Unnecessary drama, king. Remember who's, who we're connected to here, he says. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a message to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. What's he upset about? Lack of recognition. He's shown up there to this man's door and the man is quite clearly busy conversing with God about other matters and he says, you know, go and basically have a decent bath and she'll be right. It's the equivalent of when your kids tell you that they can't come to church because they're a bit sick. <coughs> and you say, okay, well, take a couple of Panadol and go back to bed. That's the equivalent of a couple of Panadol right here. Go and have a bath, you'll be right. Okay? And Naaman's pretty upset with this. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the water of Israel? Couldn't I have washed in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. He is seriously not impressed with the waterways of Israel. It's a little bit like uh, my lovely wife here is from Canada. And uh, we met while she was studying here. And, and um, I remember being excited to take her to, the, you know, my favourite spot on the River Murray, um, I said, oh, Rochelle, you're going to love this place. Walker Flat, it's beautiful, you know, and it's cliffs. You can go canoeing. And I took her there and she, well, she, let's just say that compared to the lakes of British Columbia, <laughs> I mean, the Murray has its own beauty, doesn't it? But, you know, there's beauty and there's beauty. Whatever happened at... The reality is, is that Naaman is just not impressed with this treatment. He's not impressed with this place. He's not being given his respect that he deserves. This is all getting ridiculous. Why would he have listened 
to this Israelite girl in the first place. However, Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? Somehow, probably because of the significance of what leprosy would mean to him, Naaman just says, well, I've got nothing left to lose. And so he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. What we see happen here is God doing something for Naaman that he couldn't do for himself, right? He couldn't possibly do it for himself. He didn't do it the way that Naaman expected. He didn't do it in his tradition. He didn't do it through his religion. But what he discovered through the instruction of this prophet was that this prophet was a conduit for God's shalom, for God's peace. We we translate the Hebrew word shalom normally as peace in English, but shalom in the Hebrew imagination was so much more than that. Shalom was about abundance and favor and grace and generosity. It was actually about the context being so complete that nothing else was needed. The prophet is a dispenser of God's shalom because he's familiar with God's character and he is knowledgeable about the fact that if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, then access to God's shalom is available any place and every place. But then what we find in the rest of the story is this is where it really gets interesting. You guys still with me? All right, good. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. So go back, maybe he'll get an audience this time. He stood before him and said, now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Naaman's just met Yahweh for the first time, right? But now let me pay the bill, he says. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. You see, this is not for a military commander. This is not how the military works. This is not really how any of society works. Business operates on the reality of transactions. You know, fee for service. You pay for what you get. Elisha's not interested. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. Let's just stop there. So, okay, you're not going to accept my gift. Well, can, I, can I then just at least show you that I'm going to pay in my own way? I'm going to take some earth and I'm going to make an altar of it back home and I'm going to worship the real God as much as I can. Uh, 
And so then he's on his way, maybe, having made this pronouncement. And then he says something really fascinating. Maybe he's on his way out the door. I don't know if Elisha has agreed to the earth being transported from Syria back to Israel, uh, from Israel back to Syria, but he said, sort of just on his way, he says, oh, just this one thing. Um, May the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. All of a sudden, he's been healed, but he's imagining his life back in Syria. And he remembers that his role as an army commander, his role as a right-hand man to the king, involves certain actions and certain ceremonies that are in worship to a foreign god. And you know, one of the rules for interpreting scripture is that whenever you find words repeated a lot in a short amount of time it's worth paying attention to. Naaman is absolutely clear that the worship that he has to engage in at this point is not the worship of God. He says, Ramon, three times, when I bow down, when I'm helping the king, when I'm in the temple, may the Lord forgive me for this. So he, again, he's appealing to this prophet and trying to say, there's this, you're not letting me pay for my healing at least through this action, will you just excuse, forgive me for my hypocrisy? But here's the crazy thing that happens next, is in the tradition of the prophets, you kind of expect Elisha or Elijah to call down bears and maul some people or say something like, if Yahweh is God, then worship him, or if Ramon is God, then worship him, but don't give me this half nonsense about having to be part of these ceremonies that have nothing to do with Yahweh. You just expect that. The text sort of builds up to that. And then Elisha says something that just is unbelievably surprising. You know what he says? Go in peace. Shalom. He's not interested. He knows Naaman's got his own stuff to deal with, with God, at some point. He knows Naaman's part of a system, part of a country that maybe he doesn't fully understand. It's not his business. Naaman is, uh, Elisha is fully convinced that having been a dispenser of shalom in this circumstance, he's done what it is that God asked him to do. He's performed healing so that more healing might actually be facilitated through Naaman. Who knows what this new reality, this new grace, this healing might actually give him ability to pass on when he's back in his homeland. He's not criticizing him. He's not condemning him. He's not judging him. He's saying, what he would have least expected. He says, go in peace. There's so many times, I think, in our lives where if we put our flag in the ground as a follower of Jesus, sometimes people expect us to say certain things, to post certain things, to judge certain things. 
it's a great shame, I think, that so often followers of Jesus are more known for what they are against compared to what they are for. And if we have received God's healing to the depths of our core and known that God always does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, then we should have every ability to pass that on in word and action wherever possible. And yet, this is not the case. It wasn't the case in the Old Testament, and it's not the case now. And that's why this story actually stands out. And I'm not reading into it here. This isn't what anybody expected. To be sent on your way, having received such a healing, to be sent in peace with no payment, I'm not just saying that this wasn't unexpected. It was unexpected, and the rest of the story will tell us why. After Naaman had travelled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, so this now is Elisha's right-hand man. There's a man finding himself serving the people of God as a two I see to the prophet. And he says, my master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and I will get something from him. I will make sure that this transaction happens. I'm chasing this guy down with the FPOS machine. <laughs> right? And you can imagine maybe what sort of office Gehazi keeps in the house of Elijah. I mean, this is the accountant, right? No, no offence to any accountants here. Man. But he's like, this is not right. You don't get this kind of healing for nothing. I will go, go after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman, and when Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked. Everything's all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing for good measure. Gehazi's noticed that his wardrobe is looking a little bare, right? By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. And he urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in the two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house and he sent the men away and they left. And all of a sudden, like the, the, the ledger book has been settled here. The the, the Excel spreadsheet is reading just zeros. It's level. Transactions being performed. Everyone's happy, right? End of story? When he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. I imagine this to be a lot like Gehazi is just like, oh, such a relief. There's some money in the bank for a rainy day. I got a new set of duds for ceremony next week. Um, Elisha doesn't know about it. And all of a sudden, he's come into the house of Elisha. And you sort of imagine that Elisha just is, is like being teleported from Star Trek. Right? It's just, do -do 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 -do. where have you been, Gehazi? 
I didn't go anywhere. Gehazi answered. And <laughs> this, is, this is the problem working for a Jewish prophet. Uh, <laughs> Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you? <laughs> when the young man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. It's a shocking story, you know. Someone not of the people of God has received shalom and been sent away with it. The right-hand man to the person regarded as walking closest to God himself is a bookkeeper. He doesn't understand God's grace. And you know, the... the the idea of judge not lest you be judged becomes embodied in this story. It's sort of like the ultimate metaphor of your sins will find you out. You know. And I want to put to you this, this idea that, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this saying before, the medium is the message. It's a, it was a Canadian sociologist that actually first coined this phrase. But what he was talking about when he said the medium it being a message is the idea of the way that we communicate something or how we are as a person in the midst of what we do is as important as what we say or what we do. The spirit with which we do things, the character with which we do things, the love or the lack thereof of in the words that we use and the actions that we undertake are as important as those actions themselves. And another way of putting it is, you know, the, I'm not sure where this, this phrase came from, but how you do anything is how you do everything. You know? It's this idea that we, don't, we can't, if we've actually experienced God's deep love and acceptance and forgiveness... It's going to affect everything that we do in life. It's going to continually bring about this reminder that God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And the reality of being caught up in mission with him is that over and over and over again in our lives, we have the opportunity to do for others what they can't do for themselves. All right? I think that's a lot of what being part of the community of faith is actually all about. Uh, you know, this, this idea of, of God interrupting our stories, of God doing the most unlikely thing that we think possible, is actually one of the themes that you see throughout the whole sweep of Scripture, over and over again, you know, and, and we've sometimes read the Bible so much that we don't actually realize how ridiculous some of these stories are. Noah, build an ark. A what? Abram, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him. What? 
Jonah. Go to Nineveh. You know where Nineveh was in the Hebrew mindset? It was the end of the world, right? There's this reality of the ridiculous that comes to us over and over again. If you don't see it in the Old Testament, I would posit that you need to read a little bit closer, but you see it in the New Testament over and over again as well. I mean, it's just, they're phrases and texts that have become so normal to us that we're just like, oh yeah. Jesus heads off into the desert for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He what? (laughs) The disciples are drowning on a boat. What's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. Slightly absurd. Forgiveness is absurd. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were a long way off. Yeah? And that which creates a sense of burden and load and bitterness perhaps from things that we've either done or have been done to us, God actually has the capacity to say a word, shalom. And it's not just over, it's not just vacant, it's not just an empty cup now, not filled with gunk. It's an overflowing cup, flowing up, bubbling up to eternal life. can be very difficult, you know, I think for people who have suffered a great deal in their life to sometimes come to terms with the depth of forgiveness and acceptance that is available through Christ, but it can be just as difficult for people who have been able to be self-sufficient and make it on their own, look after themselves. I don't need anything. Command of the Lord's army. I'll pay my way. And yet, whether it's to do with our physical health or our emotional health or the togetherness of our family or whatever it is that has the capacity to get in the way of our relationship with God, at some point, We come up against our own limitations and find that we need grace. The absurdity of Scripture, you find this, like I said, everywhere. This is one of the most famous Psalms, if not the most famous, Psalm 23. Have these words, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me. So we have this whole intro of protection, provision, abundance, rest, and peace. And then this interruption, you might not have notice this too much before he says you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies now in the Jewish imagination there was no uh, 
bigger symbol of God's welcome and hospitality than the table of God. And it was why being welcome into table fellowship with God, or with Jewish people was such a, an embodiment of the Lord's hospitality. But, and the reality is most of us, I don't think, have ever been in a conflict situation that you could possibly imagine like it was for David when he wrote this psalm and he was on the run and being hunted down by the king at that time and his army. But in the midst of the most threatening situation, David said, I can find peace because you've provided it. Probably one of the most powerful testimonies of the way that I have seen somebody join in with what they felt like God was calling them to do this year as far as bringing what element of God's shalom to others was in his capacity to give was through one of my very best friends in the world. Uh, his name's Andy Dunt. And um, Andy's a firefighter and uh, uh, he's an officer with the MFS and he, he got wind of the fact that there was a, a not-for-profit, a Christian not-for-profit uh, organisation of emergency service workers who were uh, collaborating to go to Ukraine and to do search and rescue work um, because obviously their resources are stretched um, beyond belief at the moment and overstretched and uh, uh, the country is in a dire situation and gosh, the world desperately needs our ongoing prayer and support in this area. Anyway, Andy had a, a whole block of leave coming up, a whole month. And um, he, he actually forego, he foregoed, foregoed, for what's the? <laughs> he went without his holidays. <laughs> and he put his hand up and he said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go help. I'm going to go do what I can do. And felt very deeply about it and thought that he would be doing search and rescue. What he ended up actually doing for close on a month straight was um, extracting bodies from a mass grave so that they could be identified by their families who didn't have any idea whether they, were, they had lived or died. And, um, and Andy said, you know, I've been doing emergency service work for almost 20 years now and, and he said, but this is the, clearly the most horrific thing I've, I've ever seen in my life. And he said, but he said, what, what was, he said, what was the bizarre experience of doing this work was that every night a local Ukrainian family uh, would invite the fiery, the, the workers, the emergency service workers into their house and with whatever they were able to bring together, he said, they hosted the most amazing meals the most amazing Ukrainian borscht and sausage and and he said you know throughout all of these Ukrainian meals there's a ceremony there's there's toasts there's like a whole bunch of toasts that they give and they give these speeches and apparently they drink a fair bit of vodka too but uh, you forgive him that at this time but the Andy said he goes I've never experienced such horror and such hospitality at the one time and he said, even in the midst of that, I knew God's presence in a way that I hadn't before. And I think that's the reality of life in many ways. Not often, in fact, probably very rarely for us, so very dramatic. But the reality is that we find ourselves often 
faced with incredible suffering, don't we? You know, one of my teachers said to me, in any gathering of God's people, there's suffering enough to freeze the blood. But what is available in its midst is God's peace and God's rest if we've got eyes to see and ears to hear. And what we can request from God is an imagination with regards to the way that we're going to communicate that this week to those that we live and those that we work with. Yeah? So that's really what I want to bring this morning. So let me just pray once more. And let's just uh, have a few moments of silence here and, and just ask that for those desperately need a sense of your peace and your provision and your protection, God, we ask that it would be received and experienced. May you move in a tangible way for those that need it. Lord, for those of us who know you, who have experienced your love, may you give us the courage and the boldness to imagine how that might be best expressed in word and action this week. May you bring to mind right now, Lord, for for us. May you bring into our mind's eye the people who we're likely to cross paths with, who we know desperately need a word, a touch, an act of generosity, of encouragement that they can't provide for themselves. Lord, we thank you for the way you love us. We thank you that you don't count our sins against us. We thank you that you welcome us with open arms. You provide us peace. So may the Lord God go with you wherever he will send you. May he guide you in the wilderness and protect you in the storm. May he bring you back rejoicing at the wonders that he shows you. May he bring you back rejoicing once again into these doors. Amen.